just going to pause because I'm just going to find the article. So it's just slip down. Hello and welcome to wherever you are to episode 16 of The Film File. Hoping you're all well. Uh, we're all in isolation. Again, doing this remotely. Technology's taken over and I can actually see Andy this time. And he can see me, hey. which I don't know if necessarily a good thing. No Scott this week. So you just got Andy and I. And we've got a packed show for you, including all the news that we can gather from around the net, another deep dive, and of course, our neat thing. And over to my partner in crime. Hey, Andy, how you doing? Yeah, not too bad, man. It's so strange being distant and just seeing you in your ho- homestead there, me over here, looking at my own image in the bottom corner and thinking, uh, yeah, I've been keeping as fit and healthy as I could possibly be. In fact, more fit and healthy than what I've been in years. I managed to lose uh, half a stone. Oh, that's good. So you're surviving well. The isolation boredom is uh, the hardest thing to overcome, but I'm keeping myself active and busy, still managing some social things through things like Zoom and online gaming and things like that. So it's keeping the spirits up more than anything else. It is. And uh, we don't know when this is going to end. I very much doubt as as of the time of this recording, we're now way into our third week, is it now? Yes, we're just in the third week now of the lockdown. So uh, uh, it was mentioned that there were only going to be three weeks. I very much doubt it. But we still get together once a week to bring you the Film Geek Show for Film Geeks. Andy, what news have you got for us? In fact, is there any news at all? Well, there is. I mean, let's just quickly skim over the corona news because corona's impacting the industry still. We're not going to list all the films that since the last recording have now been put into delayed production or been shelved because you just basically just have to accept that everything now is delayed. All I'm going to say is all of Sony's stuff is next year now. They haven't even put anything to the back end of this year. And Marvel are reshuffling all of their schedule. But let's instead look at like the positives that are still going on. So Artemis Fowl. Okay, that was the big release being talked about from a series of youth novels. I've never read them. I don't know much about them. But I know it was ready to go. Colin Farrell's in this, if I remember. Yeah, Ferdia Shaw, Colin Farrell, Tamara Smart, Josh Gad, Judy Dench. It's It was... Obviously, one of Disney's like plans, like let's try and jump on that Harry Potter youth novels bandwagon. Still, try- everyone's still trying to jump on all them. But this is one that's been like it's been in delayed production multiple times. It was a re- it was finally slated to be released this year, this summer. They're now going to go straight to Disney Plus with it. Uh, and you know, th- this is a film directed by Kenneth Branagh. It's not like a low key film. So they've decided that you know what. We're not going to postpone it any longer. People have waited long enough. Let's get this film out there. If they get enough response and traction from it on Disney+, Plus, then it greenlights potential sequels. Me, I, I think it's quite a positive thing because it means that we're getting new properties into Disney+, Plus, which Disney+, Plus is great. I'm loving it. I'm loving delving yeah, back through too. all the back catalogue of old films. But it'd be nice to have something which is a big, major like drawing point for it. Something, wow, this is something that we were going to see at the cinema. Now you can watch it on Disney+. Plus. No date said as to when it's going to come onto the streaming. But the, the film, for those who don't know the story, it's a 12-year-old genius called Artemis Fowl, a descendant of a long line of, line of criminal masterminds, finds himself in a battle of strength and cunning against a powerful race of furries who may be behind his father's disappearance. I was sold on the trailers of this at the back end of last year. So I'm quite looking forward to seeing it. Am I disappointed that it's not making the big screen? Obviously, I mean, from a work point of view, as well as a personal point of view, yes. But I'm quite excited to be able to see something like this on Disney Plus service. 
rather than everyone else is going for like you need to pay £20 to rent this for 48 hours. How are you enjoying Disney Plus? I, I, I have to say I'm having a great time with it. It's become a, a family hit. My son has already waded his way back through the back catalogue of all the Marvel films, which is interesting because we do have them on Blu-ray. Uh, but he's <laughs> he's up because he's not at school at the moment and he starts his day with a, with a Marvel film. Watch Captain Marvel this morning, in fact. I'm liking the back catalogue stuff. I do know that they are... They've scheduled Onward for release in the US on Disney Plus and brought it forward. And we were talking about that in, in last week's show. But they haven't for the UK yet. So looking forward, because I'd like to say Onward again, because you and I saw it reviewed it. Be yeah. good to catch up with it on, on Disney Plus. But so far, loving it. Uh, and I'll talk about The Mandalorian later. I think it's an amazing um, interface as well. It's a really smooth system that they've set up for the whole interface of the app. It's easy to find things and the suggestions and recommendations that it does seem a lot better than sometimes Netflix's weird suggestions. I mean, how many times can I mark down an Adam Sandler film before yeah, I get stop trying to recommend Adam Sandler to me? <laughs> um, no, I'm loving it. I mean, I've been doing the same digging through like the old MCU, MCU films. I've also been like tackling all the old animated shows that I used to watch in the 90s, the Spider-Man and the X-Men. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia in there. But yeah, there's a lot of content. The kids are loving it. Uh, they're delving into different films every day, even if it does mean high school musicals being getting played far too much. Yeah, it's it's a great service. And even better that um, I'm getting my money back for the year on it because our lovely place of work, the CEO decided that he's going to treat all the staff. Oh, that's fantastic news. I'm still doing plenty of radio, um, doing some for the Easter Bank holidays. But as, as one of my colleagues on radio said, what films are, rev- are you reviewing? And I'm going, yeah, that's a difficult one because <laughs> I don't think I'll be reviewing a new film in the cinema, well, for some time. What else have you got for us, Andy? Chinese productions. Now, China has been on lockdown for a good couple of months and the cinemas started opening a few weeks ago but then closed again on um, instruction from the government. But the actual productions for various films and TV, very high-profile ones, are starting up again. Apparently, last week, one of the key TV series over there, which had been shut down for six weeks, had started shooting again. So it looks like China's getting to the back end of things and starting to get its productions all up and running. And maybe if the West can get its lockdown properly done without people going to the seaside in droves, we can be out of this as quick as possible as well and start to see more traction in the industry. But there has been traction within the US industry. Jeff Loveness, the writer and one of the producers on Rick and Morty, has now been rumoured to be penning the Ant-Man 3 script. Peyton Reed will be back to direct, and obviously Paul Rudd is expected to reprise his role as Scott Lang. No data set for the project, but word has it that Loveness is already scribbling away on the first draft. And there's a rumour, there's a rumour that MODOK is the villain. Yeah, which uh, I'd be interested to see how they're going to bring MODOK to the screen. Is it going to be the MODOK looking like the comics, or are they going to go a bit more of a more realistic approach? He has to look like MODOK. For those who don't know who MODOK is... <laughs> Yeah, uh, it is better that you Google an image if you're not a comic book fan. Uh, it's it's been mooted for some time that they want to bring Modok into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. To be honest, I think with with Ant Man because of the more jokey comedic nature that that film series has compared to the other Marvel films, I think Modok might actually fit quite yeah, nicely. Yeah, he's he's, uh, <laughs> he's an incredibly visual villain, and and as you said, Ant Man is a good place to bring him in. Uh, but yeah, there's no date set. Working away on the first draft. 
I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Rick and Morty. I love the side referential humor that it has, the little nods, the little winks to other franchises. I'm expecting some like some really good, like juicy moments within the script coming from someone like Loveness. What else have we got? Indiana Jones Five. We've been talking about this forever. On the last, the last news of it was that Spielberg had stepped away from the project in February, and the film had had multiple script rewrites from Jonathan Kasdan, which was not looking very promising. James Mangold was being courted to be director. Apparently, he's still in the running to direct it, and he's still very keen to stay involved with it. Um, he's liking the latest ideas that are coming from Kasdan's latest rewrites, even though it's just it's been pushed to a 2022 release because of all the delays in production that are going on in the industry. To know that Mangold is still on board fills me with a bit, bit of confidence. He's a great director. He's a good... Uh, he's proved that he can do action uh, with, with the Wolverine and Logan series, uh, but he's a good dramatist as well. And hopefully, as a replacement for Spielberg, which is not an easy task, he can bring something to it and make the film his own rather than a, a Spielberg copy. And, and that, that's what we need. I mean, we don't need just another Indiana Jones film. We want it to have a reason for being, and we want it to have a, a new kind of identity for this age. Let's be honest, the, the last one that came out, Crystal Skull, suffered from trying to well it was trying to be a lucas vision more than a spielberg vision for a start and it just felt out of place especially in this day and age when you know on video games we've got so many indiana jones clones and it coming to screen we've got so many of those clones we need an indiana jones film that is relevant for today like what happened with the bond franchise yeah when daniel craig took came on board that they went okay well Bond's out there doing bond better than what we do and we've not been that good in a while. So what can we do to bring Bond up to date? And they did a good job of it. Which talking about Yes, Bond- well, talking of Bond, it was funny because it was a conversation I was only having recently, which is, are films that are kind of in this holding pattern right now, will the directors or the effects people or the editors go back and tweak? Because you can tweak a film forever if you want to. to you can make it good and you can always try to, to aim for perfection, even though perfection doesn't really exist so when it came to the latest bond film director carrie fukunada basically says we're done he's happy with the film he likes it he also stated there's no more budget left to be able to go and do that even on a huge film like bond so that's it done no retouches no re-edits it's it's in the can it's just waiting release but it does make you wonder if there are films say with effects time because a lot of movies are, yeah. always rush through the effects to get them ready for release date, whether they'll go back and go... Cough, cough, cats. Cough, cough, cats. <laughs> yeah, will they Will they uh, spend a little more time on, on looking at it and saying, listen, we can do another render, we can do another pass on this, it'll look perfect. But the, the interesting point is, even on those huge movies, there is a budget and they can't overspend on that because they're already these movies are losing money by not being in the theatres. Yeah, I've got the quote from Fukunaga here. Um, Although more time would have been lovely, we had to put our pencils down when we finished our post-production window. Short answer is money. And although Bond is a big movie, we still have to weigh cost with value. And like anything, you could tinker endlessly. The movie is great as it is. So he's happy with the end product anyway. He doesn't feel that it needs any tinkering. The whole thing of like, you could tinker endlessly... Other directors have said this about when they've gone back and done director's cuts and alternate cuts of things, that every time they go back, they feel they could change things and change things. But there's a moment that you have to say, no, I just need to step away from it at this point. And I'm, I'm glad that they're not spending time to tweak it and refine it and play around with it because they'll just start to get uncertain of what the yeah, film absolutely. is that they're delivering. And it could just mess it up. If they're good with it, if they're happy with it, let's 
just sit back and wait until later this year when we can finally enjoy Daniel Craig's final outing as Bond. Can't wait. Can't wait. We should have seen it. That's that's the hard thing to live with. We should have seen it already. Yeah, it should be out by now. The Clue remake, we've spoken about this a few times. It's uh, the one which Ryan Reynolds is producing and going to be starring in. Uh, Jason Bateman was on board for being in it, but he's had to leave the project. Uh, but the Muppets helmet, James Bowman, is reported to be close to signing up to direct. I think it's a, it's the right kind. He's got the right kind of humorous approach to films to fit like a Clue remake. Bateman's exit, obviously, loads of people were speculating. Oh, obviously, he's not happy with the film, but it's nothing to do with unhappiness of the film. He really enjoyed what was going to be going with it. It's all down to his series that he's in Ozark, which is due to start filming the next season soon. And with all the production delays that have taken place, there's going to be inevitable clashes. In his words, Clue is something we were getting very close to starting, but as it turns out, something of that size takes much, much longer to do what what the seasonal hiatus was able to accommodate. It would have pushed back the start of this season too far, so unfortunately, he had to step off it. But if if it's still around when Ozark's wrapped up, he would still love to do it. Who knows, they might put a different director on it before then. We'll see. I was excited when Bateman was... Um, t- uh, the, the whole idea of seeing like Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman alongside each other. Again? Again, because I believe they'd be Yeah, they were. They were before. in the body switch yeah. comedy. It wasn't a very good film, but their chemistry worked in that film. And I was interested to see them working together in a project. It, it sounds bad, but I actually want the production to get delayed even further through this COVID thing, just so I can see Jason Bateman, Bateman back onto this Clue project. I love Clue. I love the original. We've said before, it's ripe for a remake. Knives Out showed that there's, it, you've got an audience now for that kind of comedic murder mystery. I want to see the right cast in it. I'm going to keep my eye on this one and see where it goes. But, you know, good director, um, close to signing up. Good names involved in it. You can always hope for the best. And of course, I think we'll get this again where schedules for a lot of actors are all over the place and, you know, they'll have signed on to do a project. Uh, they're going to have to backstep and take take other things. So I think we're going to see when we get back on our feet, we're going to see big changes in castings that uh, um, we, we wouldn't anticipate right at the get-go. Uh, Hobbs and Shaw. Oh, the sequel that everybody wanted. Well, the sequel is in the pipeline. Uh, Rock the Dwayne Johnson did an Instagram Q&A and confirmed the news himself. I'm always going to refer to him as Rock the Dwayne Johnson. I don't care whether they, <laughs> it's the other way around. He confirmed the news himself. Uh, we're developing now the next film, the next Hobbs and Shaw movie, and I'm pretty excited about it. Just got to figure out the creative right now and the direction we're going to go. One thread likely, because I mean, that film left loads of threads at the end of it. Oh, yeah, it was obviously sequel. trying to set up a spin-off franchise. A sequel written all over it. The identity of the Etienne Corporation head was never revealed. We only had the voice of him. And he was the boss of the film's first villain, Brixton, played by Idris Elba. As he was only heard as an altered voice, Leach and Morgan both reportedly want Keanu Reeves for the part should Reeves' schedule have a gap. I mean, he's got a busy schedule, but he is in hot demand by every action franchise at the moment. I I think he could be right for it. It'd it'd be interesting because he'd be playing a, a villain rather than like the almost heroes that he's been playing recently. Yeah. And of course, we're still waiting for uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, which I don't know if that's that's been pushed back yet. There's been a few production stills. I believe it's in the can. So we're probably in post-production stage right now. Um, I don't know when it's scheduled for. I don't know if it's been rescheduled, but still looking forward to uh, just the chance to live in a world where there will be a third Bill and Ted film. But you're right. Keanu's just sort of gone through the roof. He had that spurt. Several films back to back, which made him a big star, which you forget about speed now. 
it's going back such a long time, which which shoved him into the action genre. And then, of course, that went on into Matrix. Then his career changed again, and now he's big again with John Wick. He just always seems to come back and have these great resurgence. There's nothing that bad you can ever say about Keanu. He is the man. We should have him on the show. Keanu, if you're listening, please join us. Uh, we spoke about Ryan Reynolds before with regards to Clue remake, but he's also producing... He's, he's really got a lot of productions under his belt at the moment. He's going to produce and star in an adaptation of the 80s video game Dragon's Lair. Did you ever play Dragon's Lair? I did play Dragon's Lair and it was beautifully animated, if I remember. It was done Don by Don Bluth Studios, yeah, yeah, which was going to be the big offshoot from Disney, but but didn't set the world on fire, even though they had some 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 hits along the way. But but Dragon's Lair was, was looked like you were playing a movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it was ahead of its time. It used CD-ROM technology to create an interactive cartoon, effectively. And, you know, it was one of those games that you put one pound in it and 30 seconds later you're dead because there was no instructions. You just had to pick it up as you're going along. And it's all about repetition and learning, like when you flick left, when you flick right. Very basic game, but it was the visual presentation that latched onto an audience and it, it, it just exploded. You know, everyone wanted to play on this game. And I'm surprised that it's taken this long before an adaptation's been mooted. I mean, even an animated animated adaptation would be marvellous at some points, but no, we're now getting um, an adaptation of it, which the story, see, it's it's a typical Dirk the Daring attempting to rescue the Princess Daphne from the evil Dragon Singe, although Daphne's actually more of an action hero than what Dirk the Daring actually was. Dan and Kevin Hagman are penning the script, who um, were responsible for the Lego movie and scary stories to tell in the dark. So oh, uh, good, some decent prestige there. So I mean, I'm, I'm excited for it purely because it's Dragon's Lair, and it's always had a, a fondness within me. I've always loved the whole feel of it. I've never been good at the game. I got it on when it got released on CD-ROM to play at home, and I still was rubbish at it. But I absolutely adored the whole idea, the, the jokiness of it, the fun of it, and the design of it. Hopefully, that will convey well. Amazing. Film. It, oh. It's almost. It was almost ahead of its time. It was as you as you mentioned. It was it was quite a, a daring visual style. It had a the completely animated look, but it was also pretty difficult to uh, pretty difficult to play. I remember it well. I remember playing the arcade version. I never played it on CD-ROM. Veronica Roth's latest novel, Chosen Ones. Uh, Veronica Roth is the one who was responsible for the Divergent series of novels. Her latest one, Chosen Ones, has been picked up by Picture Start for an adaptation to film. Now, when you hear the plot line of it. It's no surprise that in this post-Harry Potter world that this one's going to be like making its way to the screen. Hit me with it. Okay, the film is set in a world that has recently, as in the past few decades, discovered that magic is real. And it follows the character of Sloane Andrews, who was part of a team who defeated a villain known as the Dark One a decade earlier. The team of five, who are now adults, struggle with PTSD, fractured relationships, media scrutiny, and now the looming threat that the Dark One may still be around. Not he who shall not be named, the Dark the One. The Dark One. It is basically a, okay, what if Harry Potter was growing up? It does sound an, an awful lot like that. Of course, we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to step into any legal territory, but it does sound an awful lot like, what if Harry Potter had grown up? The aspect that interests me on this one is that it's going to focus on them as adults struggling with the post-traumatic stress of having battled a dark magical overlord as youths and like how that's affected their lives. That, I think that could give some decent meat to it i've got an agon suspicion it's going to end up coming out like the divergent films where it was like mm, a bit weak overall because the film studios don't really want to delve into the darker elements they want to make it a young adult kind of film franchise but i hold out hope that they'll manage to tap into something there to make it not just a harry potter-esque ripoff 
<laughs> for want of a better term. <laughs> the Divergence films, they sort of fell apart, didn't they? The first one did relatively good business. The second one didn't. It became a TV series so they could finish off the series, but it, it it was never embraced. And also part of that was there was just too much going on. There was too many youth, youth, young adult novels adapted to film. And some of them are, will always fall when there's a, a when there's a whole ton of them being thrown at the screen. You're only going to get the good ones and you're going to get some of them are just going to fail. And and the even though it did it initially very well, it, it just didn't hold the attention. There was too much else going on alongside it. Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. Were you a fan of Southland Tales when it came out? I suffered with it being Richard Kelly, and I think Richard Kelly got far too clever clever for his own good. Donnie Darko is a remarkable first film. It's It oh, still yes. stands up stunning. I quite liked his script for Domino that Tony Scott ended up directing, but I found there was the box, the Twilight Zone episode, which he adapted into a big film based on uh, Richard Matheson's story, which was far too confusing for such a a neat idea that I always thought that and, and Southland Tales is is a victim of this too many good ideas that he throws at the screen that just seem to lack a coherence so I thought it was an interesting film had a lot to do in it but it didn't all gel I, I'm quite a fan of Southland Tales and I, I revisited it about two years ago and found myself enjoying it even more on the revisit and um, when it came out it was episodes four five and six of a six-part story with a film. The one, two, and three were released as a graphic novel. And I read the graphic novel before I watched the film, and so I knew what was happening. But the flaws of that film is that you needed to have read the graphic novel to completely engage with what was going on on screen. Well, he's been doing, like every other director's been doing recently, he's did a live um, tweeting and chatting while people were watching Southland Tales uh, to go through and talk about like his vision for the film and what had gone on. He confirmed during that live chat that he's just finished a restoration 4K version of the film. I mean, it's a beautiful looking film. I'll be interested to see what he's done with the restoration. But he's also put together the 158 minute can cut, which obviously has some rough unfinished effects, which will get released with the 4K version as a second disc for posterity more than anything else. But in addition, he said he's apparently working on a version 3.0 of the film, which includes plans to film a prequel which will be the story that was told in the graphic novel done as a mixture of live action and animation. The animation will be all the story from the graphic novel. The live action is going to be using for the film within a film that Boxer Santaros, um, the Rock's character in the film, was actually involved in. And if he can get the funding for it, I'm, I'm, I'm well behind this. I mean... Like you say, Donnie Darko was out the gate, a brilliant film, a great start for a director. And I get the, it's a very like Marmite film, Southland Tales. I loved it, but I can understand why people didn't take to it. But I feel that going back and revisiting it and creating like the definitive version with the prequel involved in there and every other aspect that he wants to bring in could change a good few people's minds on the whole film. I'd be interested to see that in its full glory because it did feel incomplete. It felt... It felt a very scattered story. I, I, at the time when I saw it, didn't know about the graphic novel, which would have helped fill in a lot of a, a lot of the blanks. As I said, I think Richard Kelly is is a masterful director uh, and a good screenwriter. I think he gets too clever, and when he gets too clever, is when he distances himself from the audience. Instead of telling a a great story that could have been told as a uh, as a singular film, he expected the audience to jump in uh, and to have this. A film should stand on its own right and should be its yeah. own thing to a degree. And the fact that you needed to read a graphic novel 
to an audience that may not be even into graphic novels is is a hard pull on any story. The story should stand alone and stand on its own two feet. But I'd be very interested to see a, a full version of it. It was an ambitious project, which he couldn't quite manage to pay off. And rounding off the news this week is the sad news of the passing of Honor Blackman, played Pussy Galore in Goldfinger, but also played Kathy Gale in The Avengers, which is where a lot of us of our age probably first encountered her. Yes, uh, right from The Avengers, a real British star. There's not often you can say that, but she just had that quality of, she was gorgeous, she was, uh, she had that that air and that grace uh, and when she went to work in television, she brought all that style with her. She was she was a fantastic leading lady. Had a, had a chance to meet her very, very, very briefly. Not that she would have remembered, but I'll always remember as when she opened what was then the Virgin Cinema in Sheffield, where we live, which then became your place of work many years later. And she was there on the opening night. Um, she was a fantastic screen presence. Um, but she's, you know, she's she's bowed out at a grand old age of 94. And we thank her for bringing that that screen presence to, to, to Goldfinger and other projects she was involved in. Well, Jason and the Argonauts, she played Hera. Yeah, yeah, she was just, it's just fantastic. So yeah, it was reported that she passed away peacefully, thankfully, which is nice to know. But she was, a, she was a real icon, as well as you mentioning she was in the Avengers, which what brought her to the to the light mainly in England. She was in, as you said, Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, she was in The Secret of My Success. She was in Doctor Who. She was in Bridget Jones's Diary. She was a fantastic screen presence. And but what she also did is that the in, in the Bond film, she was the first sort of archetype Bond film that could hold her own. I mean, yes, she she fell in love with Bond and, and everything, but she 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 could kick ass in a way that Bond girls hadn't at that time been able to do and would always be remembered as that character because not many could since that until till much later in the series so she, she was yeah. fantastic and also as well as 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 being a a, a screen actress and a, and a tv a tv star she also made a single she made a single with patrick mcnee called kinky boots which was a, <laughs> about the character that she played in uh based on the character kathy gale she played in the avengers so if we get chance i'd like to play that because it's a fantastic piece of of uh, nostalgia and we will miss honor blackman so very much and a condolences to her family Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the brutes. Borrowed from the brutes. Kinky boots, fashion magazines, they wear them. And you rush to obey like the women in a harem. Full length, half length. Fully fashion calf length. Brown boots, black boots. Patent leather jack boots. Low boots, high boots. Lovely lanky thigh boots. We all dig those boots. Everybody's crazy for those things. Anyway, shall we move on? Last recording, I was given the challenge for Andy Hasn't Seen, and it was a film that is... Uh, th- this was your second pick after you pu- picked uh, the first one for the show before, and it was John Carpenter's Starman. I'm a, I'm a massive John Carpenter fan. I'm a huge John Carpenter fan, and there's not much in his repertoire that I dislike. Probably Ghosts of Mars being, being the bottom of the list. But Starman is one of those films... It, it, it's not in a typical John Carpenter film, but it absolutely hits the right buttons for me. I just think it's a near perfect film with a, an extraordinary performance from Jeff Bridges, who was nominated for an Oscar for it. It's just a film that I absolutely love. It's science fiction. It's a road movie. It's a, it's a romance story. It's got an amazing soundtrack. It's the least John Carpenter film of all John Carpenter films, but it just works. So tell me, Andy, 
did you enjoy it? I'm quite a huge fan of John Carpenter myself. And this is one of the ones that passed me by because what it sounds quite bland on paper. It sounds just like, oh, look, it's an adult ET. And it didn't really hold any like draw to me. And that's why I just let it just sit at the side for so long. Having now watched it, I can't believe that I waited so long to watch it. Like you say, Jeff Bridges was amazing in it. He plays an alien who is a scout alien who ends up shot down in the US, who disguises himself into a cloned body of Karen Allen's recently deceased husband. And so she's confronted with all the emotions that she felt towards her husband. But this intruder who is pretending to be a husband, who just wants to get to safety. It, I mean, plot wise, it is E.T. He wants to, he phones home and he wants to get home and he needs yeah. to get to the place for it. But it's such a heartfelt film. And like you say, it's got road movie elements and everything in there. But Jeff Bridges, his mannerisms as this alien inside a human skin. So obviously doesn't know how to control all the muscles. He's very like twitchy and jerky and robotic at times. Even when he's speaking, his mouth is moving in rather weird patterns to what the actual words coming out are. And it gives a completely unnerving and truly alien kind of presentation. And I can genuinely see why he got the nomination for the Oscar for this, because you're watching it and you're thinking, is he real? Is he a human? I don't know what's going on. But then over the course of the film, as him and Karen Allen's character are on this journey to try to get him to like where the, his race are going to come and collect him. He starts to grow more human and he starts to get attached to her as he's learning the human ways and learning how she, why she reacts certain ways and learning the emotions that she felt towards her husband and the connection that they, those two forms had. And as he becomes more human, his mannerisms, while still the occasional like strange twitch, soften a bit and he starts to grow whilst at the same time the risk is still there that he needs to get off the planet otherwise he will die and it's absolutely traumatizing heart rendering and a beautiful film i absolutely loved it i want to watch it again i really want to watch it it. again and i can't believe that i waited this long to watch it i mean it's sci-fi why i avoided it i don't know it's john carpenter why i avoided it everything is there are reasons why I should be watching it. And yet on paper, it's one of them that it sounded so, eh, a love story between an alien and, and someone. Oh, great. I'm not really that fussed, but I'm so glad that you told me to watch this one. I'm really pleased that you like it. As I said, it means, it's one of those films that for some reason means an awful lot to me. I think I saw it uh, at the right time. It was a it was a box office flop when it came out. People calling it an E.T. ripoff. In fact, the studio that made it passed on E.T. for Starman. It had gone through a lot of rewrites script-wise. Kevin Bacon had been attached at one point to the role. Uh, I went through numerous uh, numerous changes to the film that we got. I absolutely adore Starman. I don't think it's one of those films that have, has become a classic as, as time's gone by in the other way to say John Carpenter's The Thing has. But I, I think it's it's a, one of Carpenter's most underrated films. It's, it is... It is beautiful, and it's beautiful just in the performances alone, even if this, the story does feel somewhat over-familiar. If you haven't seen Starman, give it a shot. It's well worth it. You'll absolutely love it. Which brings me on to this week's challenge for you. I've seen yep. the list of films that, you, that you've not seen, and I'm going to go with Serpico. Now, this is one that I've had so many people insist that I watch it, and so many people completely bewildered that have never watched it. I can identify this film. My wife occasionally does this thing where she channel hops 
And then while I'm reading, then she was like, what film's this? And I'll look up. And there was one that literally I looked up and within a second went to the Serpico and put my head down again. I know the film. And again, we spoke about this previously, that it's because I'm so versed in film. I love reading about it. I love researching it. That even if I've not seen something, can I, I can identify it. I, I got a bundle of DVDs from my brother-in-law who's helping me go through all this classics that I've not seen. And that's within them. So I'll be digging that out of there and be watching that before the next one and giving the feedback. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Eventually, we're going to come across one that you recommend to me and I'm going to go, that was rubbish, mate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen Serpico. I don't have the love for it than, I, than in the other films that I've, I've recommended to you. But uh, it'd be interesting to see Serpico. I, it might be one I, I need to rewatch as well because it's been some time since I last saw it. So talking about films, as we always are, and talking about films that are, are classics, this week's Deep Dive is a film, again, that, that I absolutely adore. We'll put it in my top five of all-time favourite films. Even though I live in an age where Avengers Endgame exists, where the Avengers is is everything as a, as a 12-year-old, I would have hoped... I would have got to see and thankful that I have seen Superman the movie is still the zenith of the superhero film for me from a doomed planet in a distant galaxy to a fantastic underground hideaway from the fortress of solitude to the bustling city room of the daily planet look up on the screen it's Superman Superman the movie it's the one film that again i think is is an absolute classic and i think is damn near pitch perfect and i can watch it time and time again and i've probably seen it probably the most film i've ever, ever watched and rewatched, bar my all-time favorite which is butch casting the sundance kid i think superman the movie is the film i've seen the most absolutely adore it and this is this week's deep dive andy what are your memories of superman the movie did you see it in the cinema i did 1978 at the age of five the year before i'd been introduced to sci-fi with star wars and then the following year we get superman and i genuinely believed a man could fly as someone who's like always said that i'm a marvel geek i love marvel comics i love comics overall but i've always been more marvel more marvel more marvel yeah, but i've always turned around and said but superman is still my favorite superhero I absolutely was taken by the whole representation of this man from another planet who is invulnerable, can fly, etc., etc. I genuinely believed that what I was seeing on screen was taking place. I know that the effects nowadays, when you rewatch it, they're a bit shonky, but Christopher Reeves's commitment to it makes you believe it. I adore Superman. I rewatched it this past week um, in preparation for today, just to you know. I've not watched it for at least ooh, 12 months, so I needed to watch it again. And straight away, I was just captivated once more. I was drawn into it again. I'm sure there's still there's some people out there who don't know the story of Superman. And so I will give a quick synopsis. Christopher Reeve plays Kal-El, the son of Jor-El, who's sent to Earth to avoid the destruction of his home planet Krypton. Grows up on a farm in Kansas with Martha and Jonathan Kent. They raise him to hide his powers and be responsible. And as an adult, he moves to the big city of Metropolis, using his human guise of Clark Kent as a mild-mannered reporter for the Daily Planet. And there he meets Margot Kidder's Lois Lane and also where he reveals himself to the world as Superman. And that's all that you need to know going in. What a beautiful film. I love the structure of it. I love that we spend so much time with his growing up 
and is learning his life's lessons. It takes its time, doesn't it? It takes its time to 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 get to the iconic first shot. We built on that, and and I've said this many times. It's it's three films. We have three films in one. We've got a, a science fiction film. Yeah, uh, in the in the Krypton sequences, we've got small town Americana in the, the Smallville sequences, and then when we move to to Metropolis, we've got an action adventure film with elements of, of slightly campy elements that are still a throwback to the '60s Batman uh, and sort of early '70s Bond. But we we have three films in one, and there's a sense of belief in all of those films. They don't feel unconnected. They feel like we're we're, we're part of this. This absolutely epic, and and no matter what you say about about current Marvel films, current DC films, we have not had a superhero movie this epic, uh, with its running time, with its cast, with its whole sense of itself. It feels like a huge film. It feels like it's you need to watch it on the biggest possible screen, widescreen ever. It it still has that retention of being one of those a typical seventies epic movies where you just had a grand cast. As you said, it's this. There's there is something classical about it. And interesting with regards to the cast is the the top billing for the film was someone who was only in it for the first five minutes, and that's Marlon Brando, who was paid at that point an astronomical rate to be in to be in a movie. Of course, <laughs> what, what you have to remember is is that while he was in the first fifteen minutes, twenty minutes of the film, he was paid for two films, still a huge amount. But uh, of course, with with the problems that happened with the production of Superman two, his parts got taken out due to due to legal issues and were replaced in uh, in the director's cut. But he was supposed to be in two films. And of course, the other big star of it was, was Gene Hackman. Yeah, um, who played Lex Luthor, but apparently refused to shave his hair for the role. Yes. And so they made out that Lex is wearing a wig and there's only one scene in the whole film where he's got a bald cap on. Yeah. Just because it, Gene Hackman, I'm not going to listen to people telling me to shave my hair off for a role. No, and I'm not going through makeup every day. We'll do it for one day and that's it. A great way to get round like an actor's ego. I, I love that. <laughs> Mar- Marlon Brando as well, who re- reportedly refused to learn his lines. And so there was little notes around the sets of Krypton with little prompts for his lines. And that's why a lot of the time when, you, when, when I was rewatching it, I was watching for this. And you can see that when he's talking to someone, he's not necessarily looking at them while he's talking to them. He's looking just over their shoulder because there's a note behind them with what his lines are. And he does a lot of like gazing at, at Crystal. And that's because he's got lines just scribbled on the side of the Crystal to remind him. But he brings to it, having Brando as, as, as Jor-El, he brings to it a, a, a gravity to the film, which instantly, oh, yeah. there's the opening line of the film, this is not fact, uh, this is not fantasy, this is fact. Which which states exactly what this 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 film's about right in the the very very opening piece of dialogue. But he 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 gives it he gives it a depth that elevates it up from being from being a, a Batman nineteen sixty six type movie. So Richard Donner, who directed it, originally it was going to be Guy Hamilton, but they shifted production from. Italy to the UK for, for tax reasons and uh, uh, Hamilton couldn't do it. He approached the film and he uses a term which I think is a great word called verisimilitude, which is basically given the appearance of being true or real. And because of that, he gave the film for me heart. He, he, he never once uh, uh, winked to the camera. I know Superman winks to the camera right at the very end, but he played it all as though it was real. It was existing in a real Krypton, a real Smallville, a real Metropolis, and, and gave it gave it that gravity. It was an, an absolutely 
a horrendous production. They were shooting Superman 2 at the same time as they were shooting Superman, uh, which the Salkins who produced it had, had taken that trick from their three and four Musketeers film. It was an incredibly difficult shoot. Uh, it ended up with Donna not returning for the sequel, even though a lot of his footage was included in it. And Richard Lester uh, from Help and Hard Day's Night fame took over. And I, I have a lot of problems with Superman 2. I, I don't love it as much. I have both versions, the Lester version and the Donna version. But there is something about Superman the movie which is just right. And it deals with that 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 one problem that Superman has, which is the most uh, powerful creature in uh, on the planet, in the world. But the only thing that, that can really defeat him is not just kryptonite, but it, it's the human heart. And it's that philosophy behind it which gives it its strength. It gives it something more. It gives it a, a film that's now about something rather than just daring do and a guy flying. As you said, the, the, the effects work is dated these days. And I would love to see Warners do a, a deluxe print of it and 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 do and bring the the effects up to date. But at the time, they were groundbreaking. There's nothing we'd never seen anything like that and to that degree. And it and it holds up because a lot of the effects work is physical with with Christopher Reeve on wires and cables being flown around New York and it's it's just it's 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 just an awesome movie. I mean, Christopher Reeve's uh, commitment to the role as well is one of the things that makes it work so well. You know, he was told that they could give him a padded suit to make him look bulked up for Superman, and he insisted on going on a training regime to bulk himself up so it looked real. Whenever there's the flying scenes, despite the fact that he's probably dangling quite painfully from various ropes and, like, cables, he is so committed to it. He is, like, always looking in the right direction. He's, like, banking his body as he's turning through the air. He is, he just basically is Superman in that film. Watch it, rewatching the film, it's like, I love the creative decisions. I love the fact that it opens up with, like, a curtains opening, and then it goes through the history of the comic book and the Daily Planet, and then it expands out for the opening titles. And it just really gives it that, like, drawing you in slowly, and then just bombasting you with these titles coming towards the screen in a whooshing kind of way, whilst John Williams's perfect soundtrack is playing over it. And as soon as that soundtrack plays, I mean, I had exactly the same feeling when I first saw Superman Returns, that that soundtrack itself was enough to hit me emotionally and draw me into it. I mean, it's such a perfect soundtrack. John Williams has done some great soundtracks. I mean, this Star Wars one, fantastic indiana jones but superman for me is the perfect one and i've said this before i think it was on our i think it might be on one of the spin-off dc podcast episodes where i said that what's great about john williams soundtracks is they basically scream the name of the film to you yes and with with, with this like superman superman and he, he yeah it conveys the film I absolutely adore this film. And every time I go back to it, I fall in love with it again. And more than falling in love with the film, I fall in love with Margot Kidder again. How perfect she was as Lois Lane. She was the perfect Lois Lane. She had an energy, she had an edge, but she also had a bit of fragility within this, that hardened shell that she tries to put on. Absolutely marvellous. And the, the first appearance of Superman in the film, which is the helicopter, top of the building, falling off cables, and he swoops to the rescue. That scene just makes me well up in tears. It's just perfect. I totally get that. And you talking about it uh, has given me goosebumps because there, there is something about that, that, that sequence which is inspired. 
it's it captures everything that you need to know about what the rest of the movie is going to be about. Whether you buy into uh, Gene Hackman's rather hokey plan to to destroy California as a land grab, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is a hokey. It's a it's a, it's, a, it's an almost uh, uh, Bond type silly Bond plot. Sink California because he's got all the land next to California that which will be worth a lot more because it's coastline. <laughs> Absolutely, but you believe it all the way through. The the humor is a little bit overplayed in places, but it doesn't stop you loving the film because of, of of Richard Donner's just because of Richard Donner just giving it heart all the way through and believing it. Uh, and, and we can't talk about Superman the movie without mentioning Christopher Reeve because he was. Not only just pitch perfect and, 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 and as you said about the flying sequences, the, you believed in him, but you believed in the fact that he's two people. You believe that yeah. he's Clark Kent and you believe that he's he's Superman. And there's, there's the one sequence where they go on the date, Superman and Lois Lane go on the date. There's a moment where he's going to explain to her that he is in fact Superman. And she walks out of the room and he takes his glasses off and his entire body changes. He goes from being slouched the glasses come off and, and he physically changes into into Superman from Clark Kent. And she walks back in the room and his voice gets higher uh, and then he slouches again and you go, yep, these guys are two different people. It's so easy to believe that they are not Clark Kent and Superman being the same person. Because that's always the thing with um, Superman. People say that his disguise as he puts on a pair of glasses. Oh, wow, no one can see past that, can they? But he makes it believable, which is one thing that... A th- feel that the more recent Superman films, the Man of Steel films, didn't quite get right because, I'm sorry, but with a pair of glasses on, he still looked like he was a muscular hero. Yeah, uh, yeah. But Christopher Reeve actually, like like you say, he changed his stance, he changed his mannerisms, twitchiness. Everything was different. His voice gets an octave higher. You could genuinely believe that, okay, fair enough, I can see why people can't see this person within that one. Yeah, he, he's absolutely superb. And of course, there was, the, there was a big casting call for it uh christopher reeve was co- originally considered too too young and too skinny uh bruce jenner was uh audition for the title role patrick wayne was actually cast son of john wayne but dropped out when his father was diagnosed with with cancer so many people including sylvester stallone lyle wagner james khan were all muted to to have this have this uh, uh have, have the job of it but it's it's a testament to to christopher reeve that it affected everything about how superhero movies are played. You can see Superman the movie in a Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. You can see yeah. uh, Superman the movie, how it influenced the look of, of the comics with, when John Byrne took over and quite recently into uh, when Gary Frank draws, draws in. The way that the S logo was no, no longer the S logo, it, it was the, the family crest. The, the L family crest, or it was part of Kryptonian language. And all those have seeped into the mythology of Superman, into the comics, uh, um, because to some extent, for a long time, the movie was better than the books. Yeah, It was everything that the books weren't. It was it was still hokey and comic booky, but it but it had heart and it had warmth, which the 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 books had a tendency at that time to be kind of one-off, one-off issues. Uh, uh, Superman's villain of of the issue, so it, they were they were better than the books. I know that um, in this day and age, with the darker Zack Snyder approach towards the Superman mythos, a lot of people sneer at the old Superman films as being too light and fluffy. Which for me, I feel that the kind of the mistaking a visual representation with the actual content of the story, because in the story itself, it has got a lot of darker elements within there, and it, it's no 
different a story than what Man of Steel has given us. It's just presented in a more hopeful manner. And uh, this, this, the fact that it's bright and colourful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still a story about a lone alien isolated on a world that probably won't understand him, raised in exactly the same way by the Kents as what we see in Man of Steel later on, only given a whole different way of looking at things by the way that Jonathan Kent departs the film. In this classic Donna version, Jonathan Kent's death is a way to show Superman that despite all his powers, he can't save everyone. And that is the founding basis for this character who wants to be the best that he can be. He wants to save everyone. Uh, but and he doesn't want to get connected to people and it leads towards like him when he starts to get connected to Lois and how that affects his um, betraying his father's um, instructions towards the end of the film, which we need to talk about the end of the film. We need to talk about like people who go, oh, he, tur- he made the earth spin backwards and that turned back time. That's a visual representation for him traveling backwards through time. It's not him spinning the earth backwards and everything goes the different way. It's a visual metaphor. It is a cop-out. Turning back time is a cop-out, but it's a, it's a heartfelt cop-out. It's needed there for the, the, the con- human connection elements that they were building towards. And that was supposed to have been at the end of the second film. It was supposed to be after two films worth of loads of things gone wrong. It's his way of correcting everything and rectifying his own mistakes. So we never got to see what that completely played out with. I know that the Donner Cut of Superman 2 put that back in, but it doesn't quite have the same impact as what it would have had if we had the whole two-film journey before we got there. It also, it's referenced throughout the film that how powerful he is. Uh, and right at the beginning of the film, he's warned by Jarrell that not to interfere with human history. And he does, and he does that, but he does it for love. He does it for the, for the woman that he cares the most about, who he could, at that point in the film, he can't have. He can't have a Superman, and he can't have as as uh, Clark Kent. So there's a there's still that underlying slight tragedy about it, even though he saved her, he can't have her until Superman 2 comes along. But as, as you said, it's a visual representation, It's but it's a fairy tale as well. There's even a line in the film that he says, uh, Peter Pan is a, is a fairy tale to, to Lois Lane when talking about flying. It's just, it's beautiful. It works on so many different levels. The dialogue in some of the script is absolutely fantastic and subtle and, and brilliant. Uh, whether that's a counter to the many script writers, but I, I like to think that Tom Mankiewicz, who came in as what was called the creative consultant, working with Donna, gave it that gave it that human feel that it that it had been lacking and been I mean, much more comic booky in previous adaptations. But it, it's a fantastic film, stands the test of time. If you've not seen it, see it with fresh eyes. See it in a way that it was meant to be seen, a childlike eyes, and not with, with the way that comics have gone and the way that, that comic book movies have gone. See it for something that is, is, is the start of where we are today. We wouldn't have the, the movies that we're having without uh, Superman the movie. And from what I believe, Kevin Feige always shows it to on the start of a new production when he's working with new directors because he understands that that is, is the template film for how comic books movies especially origin movies should be done i I could talk about the superman franchise until the cows come home um, or until crypto at least comes home but (laughs) whatever happens first uh but if you if you are listening uh, please avoid superman 3 and 4 you'll you'll save yourself i'd i'd say delve into superman 3 delve into superman 3 there's some good moments in there there's some good ideas just it's buried under under a lot of richard lester comedy i mean superman 3 for the junkyard Battle of the um, Psyches alone is worth seeing. But Superman 4, yeah, don't touch it. 
Avoid, avoid, avoid at all costs. Avoid like kryptonite. Okay, so that's it for another show. But it always at this point of the show, we always uh, uh, discuss between ourselves what's been your one neat thing. There's something you've watched, something you've read, uh, games that you've played, just something that you think has been absolutely brilliant. And you want to tell us about it. Andy, have you got a neat thing this week? Well, my neat thing this week is a game or particularly a load of games, which is I'm using Tabletop Simulator to play board games. It's available on Steam on the PC or Mac. And it is a virtual tabletop with an access to a trove of thousands of board games that you'll know the names of, Catan, Ticket to Ride, Quadropolis, etc., etc., including a lot of games that are still in production through Kickstarter things that put on their virtual form so you can play. It is a 3D virtual landscape table. You throw cards along the table, you roll dice. Some of the games are scripted with setups and everything. If you like your board games and you're missing getting a chance for people to come around to your house and socialize, get a few of your mates to get Tabletop Simulator, go through the workshop, find your favorite game, and play it virtually. It plays beautifully, and me and my mates are delving into a load of our favorites, as well as trying out some games that I've had my eye on for a while but didn't want to spend 50 quid to buy. Now I've played them for free. It's like, okay, I'm going to put some money down for that once we can start to get social events back together. So Tabletop Simulator, it's available on computer, on Steam. Go and check it out. And if you search around online, you might find some deal codes to be able to get it for half price or quarter price. Well worth checking out if you're a board gamer. You'd be pleased to know my neat thing is, and I know we've been holding off for, for this for weeks and weeks and weeks, is, has been The Mandalorian. Yay! Yeah, I signed it to Disney Plus, and I mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, it's been rather fantastic enjoying it but the mandalorian has made it all worthwhile it is the most star wars thing i've seen that takes us outside of the regular characters into the bigger universe as you know i'm sure everybody knows the story it's about a, a, a bounty hunter and his exploits beyond the, the reaches of the new republic it's set after return of the jedi uh and so prior to force awakens uh, and it's so well done it's it's I mean, I think the first episode is just over half hour. There's uh, there's so much packed into it. You don't have to go into all the mythology and that, that's starting to come through. The way that Disney Plus are, are releasing it is they release the first two episodes and then it's weekly. So I'm up to episode three. Uh, episode four just landed, I think, uh, perhaps over the weekend or yesterday. Uh, 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 I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, John Favreau, who would have thought John Favreau from from Swingers would have been the guy he is now? I adored Swingers when it came out. I've always been a, a, a fan of Favreau, whether he's a, as an actor, a, a writer or a director. But he's captured Star Wars in a way that he's captured the ordinary worldness about uh, about Star Wars, that this this world exists and people get a, go around doing their stuff. Uh, and yet he's he's introduced this Western element of a bounty hunter. With, he's, he, it's a throwback to the spaghetti Western. It's unbelievably visual for TV. It's it's cinematic with every episode. I, I'm just I, I'm have absolutely having a whale of a time with it. I think it's fantastic. I absolutely adored it from the very first episode. It, it's like you say, that spaghetti Western feel. It, it's what I wanted the Star Wars franchise to do with its spin-off stories. Not just be Star Wars, but be something in that galaxy that tells its own story and the feel of it. I mean, you've got some great episodes to come. I'm not going to spoil anything for you, uh, but you'll start to see like various mem- like other members of cast come in and out of it. You'll see some like little guest names pop up and each and every one of the episodes. Some people say that a couple of the episodes are weak. I never f- felt that it was a weak episode. There were some good one-off episodes. The core story is what carries it all along. 
and season two can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned. And it's the fact that he he's already made it. He's already made season two. Uh, and we didn't know that Rosaria Dawson had been cast in it because yep. he makes it all in a big warehouse in, in Hollywood. And, <laughs> and it's that same technique he brought to Lion King and, and Jungle Book uh, of this uh, of these worlds feeling real. Absolutely brilliant. I'm glad that you're really enjoying it. And uh, I look forward to comparing notes once you've watched the whole season. I can't wait. I'll let you know. I'll keep you posted on it. So that's it for another episode. In the words of Superman the movie, you'll believe a man can fly. We'll be back very soon with another deep dive. Uh, you stay safe. If you want to reach out to us, you can get us on Filmfile UK on Twitter. And we'll see you next episode. <laughs> <laughs>